we are in a series that we've been doing for the last, well, three weeks now. This is the fourth week of a series in the book of Jude, simply called Jude, I think. It's a very catchy title. Um, and this week, we are looking at the very last two verses that we heard read this morning. Uh, and those two verses are what's called the doxology in Jude. It comes from the Greek word glory, doxa. It's the doxology, where we give glory to God for all that he's done. Uh, and if this is your first week joining us at St. Peter's and you've missed the other sermons in Jude, that is okay. Fear not, you're not going to be totally lost because these are the only two verses that pretty much anybody has ever heard of from Jude anyway. So you're going to be just fine. Uh, it's been a difficult letter. Uh, it's, it's a difficult book. It's made for uh, difficult sermons for Alistair to write, myself to write, difficult sermons to hear. I don't mean that, that they've been bad. I mean that they are, it's a difficult text to hear, difficult things are brought up difficult subjects. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible. And Jude tells us right up front in the book that what he wanted to do was to set out an orderly account of the faith. But he can't do that. He can't do that. Instead, he feels the need to write to these people to contend for their faith, to fight for the faith that was once delivered to them. See, there's been a group of people that have crept into this community who were trying to pervert the grace of God, who were denying Jesus to be the Lord and Savior, their Lord and Master. So contending for the faith was the focus of the first sermon in the series. And the second week, we looked at the ungodly, those who have done this creeping in, those who've done this perverting, this denying of who Jesus is. And this was a particularly hard text because Jude doesn't mince his words about the kind of fate that is uh, in store for these people. He says that Jesus has reserved the gloom of utter darkness for them, forever. And last week, Alistair focused on the life of the beloved of God, how we are to keep ourselves in the love of God by building ourselves up in the faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, by having mercy on those who doubt, mercy with fear, fearing God. And this is exactly what it means to contend for the faith, keeping ourselves from stumbling and grabbing the hands of those around us who are getting way too close to the cliff's edge. And it was a great sermon. It really, really was. And I left last week with a great feeling in my heart. Uh, I was bolstered in my faith, one might say. I was empowered to go out and to seek community, to love those around me in the same way that Christ has loved me. And I felt encouraged that I could actually do this Christian life. I thought, this is, this is possible. I was encouraged. And it was the same sort of encouragement you get when somebody pitches to you a very, very difficult task, an enormously difficult task, but a good task. Difficult, but good. You know what I mean by that? Okay, if you don't know what I mean, let me give you an example. So this past weekend, uh, last weekend, not this weekend, I watched a documentary called Some, S-O-M-M. Now, you have to know that I love documentaries. I love learning random stuff, uh, as I'm sure anybody who knows me probably knows. Uh, and documentaries kind of feed my appetite for that. And some is short for sommelier, okay? someone who tastes wine professionally. And the documentary focused on four young sommeliers in America who were training for their master sommelier exam. I just really like saying sommelier, so I'm going to say it as many times as I possibly can. Now, if you pass this exam, which fewer than uh, 200 people have ever done in the 40 years they've been holding it, it's one of the most difficult exams in the world to pass. Well, if you pass it, you are one of these people who can grab a glass of wine, you can look at it, you can smell it, you can taste it, and then you can identify what part of the world it's from, what country, 
what region, what kind of grape it is, what year it was produced. That to me just blows my mind. And as I'm watching this documentary, this is exactly what they're doing. They're lining up six glasses of wine. They have no idea what they are. Smell, taste, da-da-da-da-da. And they tell you exactly where it's from, when it was produced, kind of grape, all of this stuff. I was, I was blown away. So I was excited when I finished watching this documentary. And I thought, yes, you know what? Next time I get a glass of wine, I'm going to really concentrate. <laughs> I'm going to try to identify what it is that I can smell in that glass of wine, what I can taste. I'm going to develop my palate. So that night, Carrie took me out for dinner. We went to this nice restaurant on Robson Street, and I ordered a glass of wine with my main course. And when the glass arrived, I brought the glass to my nose. I breathed in deep, and I realized it smells like wine. <laughs> and I tasted it, and to the same sad yet still very satisfying conclusion, it tastes like wine. And you know, I'm sure I could get better at this. I'm sure I could develop my palate further. I could improve. But I will never, ever be a master sommelier. I will never be able to identify, and identify the country and region and appellation and varietal and vintage of a wine by simply looking at it and smelling it and tasting it. I know that. And I realized that that night. It just all came crashing down. <laughs> and there's a good reason that I'm telling you this. It's because this is exactly the same kind of realization I had last week following Alistair's sermon on Sunday. I left thinking, yes, I'm going to seek community. I'm going to remain in the love of God by loving those around me. I'm going to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus. I'm going to be praying in the Holy Spirit, only to realize I just failed immediately. Just immediately. I cannot do this. I keep trying. As much as I want to do these things, I cannot do them. But I also realized this week that this is a good thing. This is a good place to be, realizing this. Because it's exactly the place that Jude ends his letter. After just having finished saying all these things about how we need to keep ourselves in the love of God, how we need to pray in the Holy Spirit, how we need to do this and this and this, he launches into this doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. And this is just a remarkable piece of writing, I think. Not only is it beautiful, but there's so much packed into these two verses. Doxologies are all over the New Testament. They usually flow on the lips of Paul, and they break down in two different ways. They contain two things, always. The first is the reason that God is to be praised. Why ought we to give him glory? And the second is the content. It's the praise itself. So this seems to me as good a structure as any to look at this doxology. So that's what we're going to do this morning. First, we're going to look at why, after all of this stuff that Judas said, is God to be praised? And second, we're going to look at how God is to be praised. All right, so open up your Bibles, if you've got it, to those last two verses of Jude. If you need to turn on your phone, go ahead and do that. But don't check your Facebook. I'll know. God is worthy to be praised in verse 24a because he alone is able to keep us from stumbling. He alone is able to keep us from stumbling. Now there's a few questions that arise immediately when I say these words. And the first one is this. What exactly does it mean to be kept? He keeps us from stumbling. And this might seem like a simple question, but I assure you it's a lot more complicated than you think. This is the first time in Jude that he's used this particular verb to keep. But five other times in, these very short, in this very short letter, 
he's used another verb that means keep. So he's used this word a lot. Keep, 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 keep. Verse 1, verse 6, he uses it twice. Verse 13, verse 21, and now we get this new verb, meaning keep, in verse 24. So what I want to do very briefly is just look at each of these, and what do they mean? In what way is it being used? So verse 1, to those who were called beloved in God the Father and kept for or by Jesus Christ. In other words, God is the one who does the keeping. He's the one who keeps us for Jesus. God is the subject. Verse 6, and the angels did not stay or keep within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept these ones in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. In other words, it was because the angels did not keep within their own proper position, rightful position before God, that Jesus is now keeping them in eternal chains. Verse 13 is similar to this last sense. The ungodly are like wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved or kept forever. And then in verse 21, this text from last week. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So if we step back for a minute, we can see why this verb keep is a little more complicated than we first thought. When we consider all of these things together, Jude is very clear that God is the one who does the keeping, ultimately. He keeps either for the purpose of eternal life or he keeps for the purpose of eternal darkness and separation from him. But we are also not passive in this keeping. We are to choose to keep ourselves in the love of God as the beloved by praying in the Holy Spirit, by following his commandments. Or we can choose, like the angels, like those who have crept in and perverted the grace of God, we can choose to reject our identity as God's children and we can choose to deny Jesus as our Lord. In other words, our lives are in God's hands, the hands of a loving father who desires his children to choose life, but they're, they're gentle hands, hands that don't restrain us from rejecting him as well. What's so hard to get our minds around, though, is that even though when we choose to do all these things that Jude tells us to do, we still cannot keep ourselves in the ultimate sense. Only God is able to work these things in us. So the question stands, what does it mean to be kept then? Well, it means to trust ourselves into the hands of our loving Father who desires to keep us for the purpose of eternal life. That is what it means to be kept. And the second question we have to ask out of this is what does it mean to stumble? Because it says to keep you from stumbling. What does it mean to stumble? Well, the most obvious meaning, I think, is that it's God who keeps us from stumbling finally and fatally. What I mean by this is that it's God who ultimately preserves our lives. The ultimate hope for followers of Jesus is that this life isn't the end, that the world in its present state is not in its final state. We hope for the resurrection of the dead. We hope for the glorification of our bodies to be like Christ's resurrected body. We hope for the restoration of the world. But these things rest entirely on the work of God. If we are to know these things in the final sense, it will only be because God has kept us. He has preserved us. Judas reminded us throughout this letter that we must keep ourselves within the love of God if we're not to suffer the same kind of fate as these angels that he's talked about or as those who've come in and perverted the grace of God. But we must not begin to think that we can keep ourselves 
from that sort of fate. Only God can do that. But God doesn't only keep us from stumbling in that, in that kind of fatal and final sense. He keeps us from stumbling in other ways as well. And what I mean by stumbling in this sense is the, all the ways in which we fall from the life God would have us live. All of the ways that we fall from the life that God would have us live. This is what it means to stumble as well. So if I were to ask you, each one of you, at this very moment, what are the ways in which you have stumbled or fallen from the life God would have for you? I'm asking you, what are the ways that you have fallen from the life that God would have for you? I'm certain something is coming to mind. Perhaps more than one thing, perhaps lots of things. And that's okay. Because what Jude is telling us is the issue is not with stumbling itself. Stumbling, it's not just about the sin itself. It's, it's about how we fall. It's about what we do when we fall. See, I can sin. I can mess up really badly in my relationship with God, in my relationship with my wife, in my relationship with my family, my friends, those in my wider community. And this can either drive me to my knees to see my desperate need for God, or it can drive me away from him. It can drive me away ashamed and embarrassed that I've yet again failed to keep myself from whatever that thing might be. See, to fall away from God, to stumble, is an issue of the heart. To trust God to keep us means that every time we become aware of all of the ways that we have messed up, we turn to him and we ask him to keep us. We turn to him in recognition that we cannot do this. The cracks are not surface cracks. They are structural. But if every time I stumble, I simply try harder, I work harder to rid myself of this weakness, then my heart just gets gradually colder and harder. And the thought of my own brokenness gradually worries me less and less, and my life looks less and less like the God I profess to believe in and follow. Shannon Daly, one of our bloggers, wrote a beautiful blog this week called There is a Crack in Everything. And we, we honestly didn't plan for this blog to show up this week in the feed, but it couldn't have been timed more perfectly if we had. If you hadn't read it, I would encourage you to do that. Absolutely, go and read it. It's a blog about failed resolutions and about our tendency to try to mend these broken resolutions ourselves. All of the time missing that it's our brokenness and our failures that allows God to pour himself into us and to make us new. It's such a beautiful image. And the question is, in the midst of our striving to do better, will we actually allow God to keep us? Because he alone is the one who is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory. And it's, this is the second reason that Jude gives why we are to praise God. The first was that he alone can keep us from stumbling. The second is that he is worthy to be praised because he alone can present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. No matter how many times we run away, no matter how many times we slip, we fall, what God wants to do more than anything else is to usher us into his glorious presence, usher us in with joy in our hearts. And this is the essence of salvation, that in the end, God will usher us into his presence. And if we have been kept by Christ, if we have been delighted to keep his commandments, then nothing should set our hearts and our minds more aflame 
than the sure and certain confidence that God is going to do this. And the question is, do you rejoice in that? Do you rejoice in hearing this doxology to him who is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy? Do you rejoice in that? You should. You should rejoice in that. You should rejoice as you look back over the distance from which God has dragged you from where he first found you. You should rejoice because this is something we all need to hear constantly. I can't even tell you how many times I've fallen away, how many times I've run away from the God who's known me and loved me and that I've known and that I've loved. And I need to be reminded constantly that he desires to do this, that he desires to carry me into his presence, blameless and with joy. And if this is the first time that you have heard this, then I hope you too are rejoicing because this is what God desires to do for all of us, to carry us into his presence. So do you rejoice in that? Or does it disgust you? Because that's the other option. Does your heart cry no when you hear this doxology? I don't need to be kept. I've done nothing wrong. I'm a good person. How dare you suggest that I need anything from God? Whatever it is that I need to do, I will do it myself. Because that very well might be your reaction to hearing this doxology. I really hope that it isn't your reaction to hearing it. Because if that's the cry of your heart, then you've missed it. I mean, you've missed what God wants to do in you. You've missed who God is. Because as much as you don't want to admit it, God is the only one who can keep you. And he is keeping you. It's a matter of what he's keeping you for. He's the only one who can present you blameless before the presence of his glory. And when you've finally seen this, and you will come to see this, I know you will, you will delight in hearing these words. You will delight in hearing this doxology. This is why we praise him. He alone can keep us from stumbling. He alone can present us blameless before the presence of his glory. And so with Jude, our hearts cry out the second half of this doxology to, to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and forever. God is to be praised because of his saving work in our lives. He's to be praised not only for his involvement in the big movements, but his involvement in the minute as well. And the praise God deserves for this is massive. Our God is massive. He is beyond comprehension. This week, NASA released a photo uh, from the Hubble telescope, did any of you see this photo? Of the Andromeda galaxy, it's the closest galaxy to our own. And they took 411 images, and they put them together to create the, the highest resolution photo that's ever been taken. Now that sounded really geeky, but I said it. The image takes you through 100 million stars, and travels more than 40,000 light years. Yet this is only one part of one galaxy amid the 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Right? Mind blown. This is the universe that God created. This is what we believe. To say that he is worthy of all glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever, doesn't even scratch the surface, really. It's just a way of trying to capture what we have no ability to capture. So what could God possibly need with our praise? I think that's a good question to ask out of this. And the simple answer is that he doesn't need it. We need it. We need to praise God. 
apart from a right understanding of who we are before the Lord of this universe, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we are lost. We need to praise him because it puts our lives in perspective, both our suffering and our joy in perspective. Our hearts were made to praise something. If not God, then something or someone else, whatever that might be. And to direct our praise at anyone or anything else diminishes what it means to be human. It strips us of the exalted position that God has given us within his creation. Because he may not need our praise, but he desires it. He says over and over and over again, he desires the praise of his people. And we need to praise him because praise is wired into the very fabric of creation, the very fabric of our beings. One of my favorite parts of the Gospels is Jesus riding into Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion. And Luke writes that the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I love that. Love that. God will be praised, not because he needs it, but because the whole of creation cannot help but praise him. And so like Jude, when we realize the enormity of our God, when we realize our entirely helpless ability to affect our own salvation, then we cannot help but break out in praise of this God. And so it's here that I stop. Because I've arrived at precisely the problem of preaching a passage like this. This is a text to be enjoyed. This is a text to be reveled in, to be assured by, to be encouraged by. And it stands on its own. On its own, it's a stunning portrait of who God is. It very simply and elegantly reminds us that the essence of salvation is to be ushered into the presence of God. And the sure and certain confidence in, his, in this life that he will do that. The essence of salvation is to be ushered into the presence of God. And the sure and certain confidence in this life that he will do that. And what could be more transformative than that? So I'll end with this. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.